This is Leaving Laodicea with Steve McCraney, and this is a podcast for those who realize that apathetic, lukewarm, flannel graph faith just isn't going to cut it in the chaos that surrounds us today. We need something more, something different. So join us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. Hey, before I begin, I need to go ahead and share something with you personal. Um, this is a uh, this is a new year. I know we have new years all the time, but seeing what that 2020 was like, not necessarily with the coronavirus, but just with everything else that's going on, seeing what this week is going to be like in Washington and what could and couldn't happen and see how the persecution is beginning to build against the church, see how apathy is kind of seeping in even uh greater than I even imagined that it could. Uh, Seeing all this, it's made me sit back and reflect on my own life. And uh, I realize, as you should realize, that we'll have to give an account for our life to the Lord at some point in time. You know, our sins have been atoned for, but what we have done or not done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is on us. And, uh, you know, He will, uh, for men, He will give us, we'll have to give an account on how we led our families. In the fear and admonition of the Lord, or do we just just forge ahead blindly because we're too busy building our own little empires? For women, how we submitted to our husbands, how we raised our kids, what we did with our life to each of us, whether we obeyed Christ's commands or whether we didn't, whether we followed the Great Commission or we just let some hired holy man take care of that. The reality is that we're all going to give an account. And I was looking at my own life um, some of the things that I'm going to be accountable for. And one of the things that I'm going to be accountable for is how I have pastored this church, how I have tried to give God glory in what we do here. And what I have realized, what the Lord has revealed to me, is that rather than fostering an environment that gives God the most glory, what we have done is fostered an environment that makes us feel most comfortable. And it's not about us. It's about him. You know, we, uh, we take liberties here. Uh, I take liberties here that we would never do in any other venue. We would never start whenever. We would never have an appointment with our boss at 1030 and show up at 1045, 11. It doesn't really matter. We would never go to a movie. At least we try not to go to a movie that's already started. Because we'll miss the beginning of it. And if we go to a movie that's already started, we'll interrupt people as we go in, excuse me, and and take away. We don't want to do that to strangers. Yet this is about God's glory. And so some of the things I want to share with you today are some of the things that he's kind of uh, shown me what we need to do and what I want to encourage you to join me with. But understand that this isn't about us. It's never about us. In our culture and our narcissistic view of religious life, it has always become about us. Because if it's not about us, then we'll go somewhere else where it will be about us. But it's about Him and Him alone. So this is some of the things that God has been dealing with me. And uh, I hope He'll speak to you the same way. Let me pray. Father, thank You for again providing a place for us that we can come and worship You. To do just that, whatever that means. To worship you in an acceptable way, worship you in a way that we feel comfortable, worship you in a way that doesn't extend us or make us feel awkward, or to worship you in the kind of worship that pleases you and puts a smile on your face. Lord, I know in the West and in my own life, in my church experience, my whole life, it seems like it's always been about us and never been about you. We have glimpses of it about you, but primarily it's about us. And Lord, would you Would you forgive me for that? Would you forgive us for that? Would you forgive your church for missing the mark and forgetting what we Scripture shows us that the church was based on in the very beginning? Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you will bind and rebuke Satan, that you will let us stand against Satan and against our flesh when it comes to learning about you. And would you put in us this desire for more of your word to more of your spirit to experience you like we never had before. And Lord, that all that happens, we want to give you glory. And I will thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So please, if you would, as I go through this, and I'm going to go through it slow and slow for me, and uh, probably I'm not going to get through all of it, but I would like you to have an open mind as we really take a look at what life was like in the early church. You know, we have the church today that is marginalized and really does nothing to, to our culture. The culture doesn't care about the church. The church really doesn't stand much for anything anymore. The church is splintered and divided in a billion different denominations and various churches and various creeds and, and the church. There's, there's no one position of the church. How, what is the church's position on abortion? There is none. There's this one and that one and this one and that one, individual positions, but there's no corporate position anymore. What is the church's position on racism? What is the church's position on homosexuality? What is the church's position on everything that assaults our culture today? And the church doesn't have one. And so therefore, the world never says about us, church and time in which we live in the Laodicean church age, these men turn the world upside down. Because what we're doing is let the culture turn us inside out. So we look more like the world than we do the church. Look like him. I want you to think with me, just Think of what it was like if you lived in the first century and you experienced Christ and all of a sudden you got saved and the first thing that you would realize is you'd be rejected. Primarily, you'd be a Jew in the very beginning. You'd be living in, in and around Jerusalem at that time. You come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you were shunned by your family. You were shunned by your friends. You most likely lost your job because you had abandoned the faith. You'd become anathema to Jehovah God, to the Jewish system at that time, and you were following this dead Messiah that alleged was raised from the dead. You would face rejection. You would be all alone. You would have all your friends that aren't really your friends on Facebook defriend you. You'd have nobody invite you over to the party. You would find yourself sitting at home at night, suffering persecution because of this decision that you made. The persecution may take, uh, may take the form of losing your job or somebody maligning you or telling you, how come you're not wearing a mask or, or something of that nature. It would be, it'd be bad. At the early stages, we haven't got governmental per persecution yet, but that is coming, but you would face the fact that your friends aren't your friends anymore. Your family is not your family anymore. Jesus said that a members of a man's own family will become his enemy. And if you don't love him more than husband and wife and father and brother and son and daughter, that you're not worthy of him because he took us out of this world so the world would reject us. How much rejection have you and I, has the church received? None, hardly any compared to what the, it happens in other places of the world or what the early church went through. And so you're rejected, you're persecuted, but you've met other people. And these other people have shared something that you've shared. There's this, this common experience that you have. It's the Holy Spirit that lives within you. Paul wrote that in the book of Ephesians that it's our deposit, our guarantee of our future inheritance to come. And all of a sudden, it's like there are these people that just mill around you that you realize have the same experience that you have. It's, it's, they've met the living Christ, and maybe they aren't really bold about it, but when you meet them and you see them, there's this common bond and this kindred spirit. Yes, they understand what I've gone through. Yes, they're suffering persecution. They're suffering rejection like I am. Yes, the world may say that I'm worth nothing, but Jesus says I, I am complete. Paul says, I am complete in him, and I've met other people just like that. It's kind of like if you've lost a child and gone through the pain and the suffering of losing a child, and you don't, you know, you, you talk to people about that, and, and they say, I know just how you feel. And you want to just scream in their face and say, No, you don't. You have no idea what I'm feeling inside because you have all your children and I've lost mine. And then you meet someone who suffered like you have suffered, who can look at you and say, I know exactly 
how you feel. I went through it. The pain that you're suffering is the pain that I suffered. And let me tell you by my experience what I've learned to help. And all of a sudden, there's this, this bond and this kindred spirit that, that brought these Christians together. Not like some voluntary association of something culturally that we do today. There's a commitment. There's a oneness when that happens. Most people join together and they formed a community. They formed a, a self-sustaining community. It wasn't like a, living in a cul-de-sac. It'd almost be like living on a farm where you could take care of all your needs because you didn't know if the world was going to sell to you anymore. You didn't know if you were going to be rejected in the marketplace. You didn't know if you were going to lose your job. And that community grew into something more than just neighbors. That community grew into something like brothers and sisters and family, like blood, like, like, like it is with my brother. I mean, my brother and I have very little in common when it comes to the things that really matter, but he's still my brother. And there's nothing I can do to, to change that or I would ever want to do. And it's like a, a level of intimacy in a family that moves from close association to voluntary association to a community to a family. And they call that the church. And it was an amazing entity. It was living and it was pulsating and it was the most incredible witness of love and of kindred spirit and of community that the world had ever seen. And it awed the uh, Jews and it awed the Romans at that time. It was something marvelous, something incredible where they got together and prayed and, and God met all their needs and, and it was miraculous and people loved to come. And if you look at the book of Acts, and we're going to just look at it a little bit today, God added to their number daily, those that were being saved. The number of believers were now multiplied. Now priests are joining that. And it seems like it's, it just grows exponentially in a hostile environment. And yet we're stagnant today. Church doesn't really grow. We just basically trade baseball cards. You know, I offend somebody, so they go to this church, and somebody's tired of that church, so they come here, and, and nothing really changes. Men don't lead their families in the fear and admonition of the Lord because leading them to a relationship with Christ is not number one in their parental priorities because it's not number one in their life. It's not the way it was in the beginning. It's not the prototype. It's not what Christ left for us. So what we try to do today is we try to market what the church was like in the first century by using these cute little phrases, but they really, they, they really ring shallow to me. We call ourselves the family of God, which the Bible says we are, but a family is someone who is intimate and tight and self-sacrificing and, and looks over objectionable things or, or irritants and, and cares about building each other up. We even sing the songs, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. You remember that song? Well, that's old school. New school now is we're building community. So, so what does that mean? Well, it's building community. Our church is building community because what we're going to do is we're going to do life together. Really? Yeah, that's our, that's our mantra in our, in our new church. And some of the churches even have statements like this. Community is not just being together. It's about doing life together. And how do we do life together in a church committed to this? Well, it's really simple. We all come together in a huge auditorium where we don't really know anybody and we sing songs by a really good praise band. We hear a wonderful message by a great speaker. And then maybe if we want to, we get together in little small groups like Sunday school classes that meet in somebody's home. But as far as doing life together, what does that even mean? Do we take vacations together? Do we invite people over to our houses during the week? Do we constantly call them? Are we as close to our church members as we are to our own family members? If I have a, a problem in my life, is there somebody I can call? Or do you just kind of suck it up? And when you come to church on Sunday and they ask you how you're doing, you put the smile on your face and go, fine, and you? That's my theological impression of all of this. Yawn. It's boring. It's trying to create something artificially 
that can only be done by the, imp- the power of the Holy Spirit working in people's lives who are willing to sacrifice. Should the church be doing life together? Absolutely, but it's not a marketing slogan. It's an absolute way of life where there's one priority and there's one final authority in every one of our lives. And the priority is to grow in the likeness of Christ and the authority is God himself speaking to us through his word. Nothing else matters. So what do we do? I want you to notice that Jesus spent a lot of his time, especially in the latter part of his ministry, you know, in the beginning of his ministry, he was kind of public. And when they rejected him, he decided that he would no longer talk to them outright. He would now talk to them in parables and then explain the parables to his disciples. And then he would bring his 12 or the, the, in the entourage that is with him close to him. And he would spend the last year or so of his ministry just teaching them. And if you'll, if you'll take a macro view of the, of, uh, the teaching of Jesus in the last year of his ministry, it seemed like what he was focusing on is teaching them to do the things he was going to do or he was doing when he was gone because I'm no longer going to be with you forever. He even told them why. We find this in John chapter 14, talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, you will also do. What, what really? Yeah, what I, what you see me doing, you will also do. Lord, uh, you multiply loaves and fishes. You preach these incredible messages where throngs come to you. You cast out demons so the demon-possessed people are now in their right mind. You walk on water. You raise people from the dead. What, what do you mean the works that 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 I do, you do, that I will also to do. And, 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 and how is that even possible? Oh, you don't understand. Greater works, greater works than you've seen me do, you will also do because I will go to my Father. And if you read the rest of it, it's because I will go to my Father and he will send you another helper, another comforter, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, who will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. He did that. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit resides in you. What you choose to do with that is on you. What we choose to do with that collectively as a body of Christ to honor and glorify him is on us. Remember, he spent much of his time training his disciples to do what he was doing when he wasn't with them. The classic example of that is in Matthew 10. Can you all turn to it? Matthew chapter 10. This is really amazing. It's almost like Jesus is saying, you're my intern now, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to send you out, and I'm going to give you the same spirit that I'm going to give to you after Pentecost so you can be who I am to a lost and dying world. The chapter begins by him uh, listing his disciples, but the first verse says this. And when he had called his 12 disciples... He To him, he gave them power. This is the word that means authority. Gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kind of sickness and all kind of diseases. By the way, same power they had here is the same power you have also. You have God living in you. And then it lists the name of the apostles. And in verse number five, it says these 12. And then later on, he sent them out a group of 70. So the entourage is now going. It's that Luke gives that account. It's not just limited to the 12. These 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them. I'm not going with you. I want you to go, and I want you to learn what it's like to have me living in you. I want you to learn what it's like to be me after I'm gone, after I've ascended into heaven, and I've sent you me in the person of the Holy Spirit. I don't want you to get sidetracked on political issues. I don't want you to get sidetracked on racial issues. I don't want you to go to the Gentiles. I don't want you to go to the Samaritans right now. I want you to go to the lost sheep of Israel, and I want you to do what I am doing at this time. Verse 5, do not go in the way of the Gentiles, nor do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And how is, do I know the kingdom of heaven is at hand? How is it more than just words? Well, I will manifest, you will manifest by the spirit that lives within you what it's like to live in Christ's kingdom. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. As a matter of fact, don't even worry about yourself. Just go. Don't go through two years of deputation to have all these churches support you, to have enough money to go over in the mission field to make sure your needs are met, which is what we do, because that's prudent and logical. Don't even worry about that. Your job is just to go, and I will take care of meeting your needs. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper for your money belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staff. Why? Because I will take care of everything for a worker who you working for me is worthy of his food. It's worthy of being taken care of. If you seek me and my kingdom first, I will supply all your needs, he said three chapters earlier. In much the same way, listen very carefully, the Lord shows us in the book of Acts what the early church should be like, what the early church was like. And if the early church was like this, it's not like, here's how the early church was, but you guys are supposed to be totally different. I'm going to show you what church was like when I first created church, when I inaugurated church, when I filled people with the Holy Spirit. And what they did is not what you're supposed to do. I mean, that was for them and it's not for you. I'm just going to basically show these mighty miracles and these wonderful things the church did back then and leave you wishing it could happen, but knowing it won't. What kind of God does that? What kind of God lays out for us this abundant life in Christ, lived out by people of flesh and blood just like us, with fallen carnal natures just like us, who've been redeemed by Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit, and then says, but your, your life is supposed to be different. Your life is more apathetic, and I'm okay with that. Your life is more carnal, and, and I'm okay with that. Your life is more focused on living in this world rather than living in the kingdom. And I'm okay with that. It's not what happens at all. What he does in the book of Acts is he lays out for us, this is church. This is how church should function. It should function then and it should function now the same way. We, of course, have changed it. So the church is no longer a bond that we have with the kindred spirit to people we're committed to. But church is pretty much like a club. It's like a political affiliation. It's somebody, it's a group that we join and we may or may not be committed to those people. We just basically do our church thing together. We come on Sunday. We get encouraged, hopefully by some message. We pay for our seats by putting our, our ticket price in the, the offering plate that goes by. Maybe if we're super spiritual, we'll come on Tuesday night or Wednesday night, but pretty much not because we got our own life and we do church on Sunday and the rest of the week is ours. When it comes to our friends, we have these friends at work, may or may not be Christians. We have these friends at school, these friends in our neighborhood. We have these family friends and then we have our church friends and never the groups ever get together. We don't, we don't invite people into our house. We don't have home Bible studies. We don't reach out. We just let somebody else do that because our job is to build our kingdom, to make our money, to do the things that we want to do because that's the narcissism of the Laodicean church age. Wasn't that way at all? You've read the book of Acts. We're going to be looking at, over the next couple of weeks, some passages in the book of Acts. But I want you to think of what the early church was like from the book of Acts. And I want you to, I want to ask you a couple questions. These are the questions that the Lord asked me over the last week. Steve, what do you know about the early church? Well, I know what I see in the book of Acts, and I know what I read from church history and stuff of that nature. And okay, but what were they like? What was the early church like? Do you think it's like church today? You think when we get together, we talk about all sorts of weird things. When the Super Bowl rolls around, we just cancel church, put a big TV up here so we can watch the Super Bowl because that's what we do on Sunday rather than go to church. You, you think you think church is something that we don't really care about that much? I mean, the, the early Christians, were they like that? 
or were they suffering persecution and rejection and had found a group of people that were kindred spirits to them that were closer than their own family members and therefore they would do everything they could to benefit and uplift others? What was church like? And if you went back to one of their worship services, would you feel comfortable with them? Gosh, I wouldn't. I'd almost feel lost. Because what we've accepted today is sold-out Christianity. It's like, compared to what I see in the book of Acts, is, is, is sad. It's kind of like, again, I, I shared a story with you when I got an opportunity in Haiti to experience a church service different than the ones I'm comfortable with. <clears throat> when we come to church, we, hey, how you doing? What you doing? Hey, it's good to see you. Good to see you. We sit down in our chair, and then we're ministered to. We, we're, you know, we sit there and we're entertained and we were given an opportunity to sing songs and a message is proclaimed to us. And in a lot of churches, the pastor is sitting out there giving you the final attaboy before you get in the car. Hey, glad to come. Good, good to see you. Good to see you. Oh, hope you come next week. You know, it's all about you. Hey, nice looking family. Gosh, when I went to Haiti, it was different. These people had nothing but Jesus, nothing but Jesus. And they all came together. And from our standards, I know I've shared it before, it was going to be a train wreck. But God honored that. God was there because those people were worshiping out of need. And sometimes we worship out of habit. So if you went back to the early church, look at the commitment of the Christians in the book of Acts, who met house to house, day by day. The Lord was adding to their numbers daily. They didn't care about anything, but sharing this faith with a lost and dying world. How would you view their spiritual life and commitment compared to yours? What would it be like if you showed up and they said, um, I said, man, listen, hey, um, um, tomorrow, like at 12 o'clock, there's going to be a bunch of people down there at the Walmart because they got, every guy has to wear a mask and it's going to be a long line of getting in. We can go down there and we can just share the love of Christ with all those people in the line at Walmart. You want to come? Uh, no. No. Um, why would I want to do that? Makes me feel awkward, makes you feel uncomfortable. We hire evangelists to do that. That's just not what we do because it's important that the culture looks up to Christianity and doesn't make us look like a bumpkin to do something like that. No, I, I, I feel uncomfortable doing that. Got a phone call yesterday. Lady on the other line. Hey, uh, is this Steve McCraney? Yes, it is. Listen, I'm not trying to sell you anything. This is not a, um, uh, whatever those calls are that you, you always get, and uh, but I would just like to share some encouraging words from you from the Word of God. Do you do you know the Word of God? Yeah, I would love to hear the encouraging words that you want to share. Uh, I'd like to share with you. Second Peter quoted the verse, and she shared the verse with me. And I'm thinking, all right, where's the sales pitch? Where's it going to come? I'm buy a book, you know? You know let's join something, you know? What, what what's going on? And, and that was it. You know, I just just want to share that with you. Uh, excuse me, excuse me. Um, before you go, do you belong to some organization that is prompting you to do this? Or are you doing this just on your own? Well, I'm the Jehovah Witness. Ah, I got it. Got it. Listen, thanks so much for calling. Click. People who don't even have the truth are more committed to their darkness than you and I are to the light. She's calling a stranger. Think she got rejected? All the time. Calling a stranger and just reading scripture. She didn't ask me to join the church. She didn't ask me to send me their Watchtower magazine or whatever it is. I mean, I was, I was amazed, not at her commitment, but I can't even imagine trying to get us to do something like that. Oh, I don't, I just, I don't feel comfortable on the phone. That's right. It's all about us. I don't feel comfortable on the phone either. So I ain't going to do it. I like to, how are you going to pass out some tracks? I don't feel comfortable offering somebody something because they, they may turn me down and reject me. Yeah, well, when a waitress goes up to a, uh, your dining table and says, would you like some more coffee? And you say, no, that's rejection too, but it doesn't bother her. And so, you know, because I feel uncomfortable passing out a track, uh, we just don't do that because that's just not what we do. Sharing the gospel. I, I, just, I just feel uncomfortable sharing my faith. So we don't share our faith. The church hardly ever shares its faith because it's all about us. It's what we want to do, and it's not about him. So what can we learn from this early church, from the lives of the early church? And I just want to hit just one phrase with you, and uh, this is just one simple thing we're going to learn. 
Um, and it's this phrase that you find all throughout the book of Acts saying, in one accord, uh, with one accord. Church was not divided. The church was not splintered. As a matter of fact, every time it appeared Satan wanted to divide the church internally, God came in and said, it's not going to happen. Hey, we got a problem. Well, what's the problem? Well, we got, we got Hellenistic Jews over here, and then we got Jewish Jews over here. And since we're come from a Jewish background and we don't like these Hellenistic Jews, when we're allotting out the daily allotment of food, wow. So they're feeding all these people. When we're allotting that out, it seems that some of us are more inclined to give our widows and our moms the best of the food if they're truly Jewish, rather than being a Hellenistic or a Greek Jew. And then all of a sudden, we've got this division going on here in the church because of some sort of racial prejudice. Remember what happened? All right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to it's seven men, and we're going to put them in charge of that, and we're going to devote ourselves to prayer and preaching of the word, and all of a sudden, that, that problem was gone. Had Ananias and Sapphira come walking in there, and you know they were lying to the Holy Spirit about how much money they gave to the church. It was a voluntary thing to do, yet they wanted praise and adoration. If you will look at it, that Barnabas got for selling a piece of property and giving it all to the work of the Lord so he could be un unencumbered and later on go with Paul on the missionary journeys. And God decided to end that by having them both drop dead. And the young men dragged them out and buried them in the backyard. I mean, God was very concerned about the unity of his church. As a matter of fact, in the last message Jesus ever spoke, in the last couple chapters of the book of John, he talked about the fact that the world will know that Jesus came from God if we are one, just like he and the Father are one. Look what happens here. Acts 1.14. This is after the ascension. 120 people now, Jesus is now gone. They're heading back into the upper room. And it says, these all, 120 of them, continue with one accord. Not one accord. In prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with all his brothers. There wasn't a division. It wasn't my opinion and your opinion. We're going to have a vote and, and all that kind of stuff. They were all bonded together, united to this Christ. Chapter 2, verse 1, right before Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were still all together in one accord and in one place, waiting for this glory of what God was going to reveal to them. Acts chapter 2. This is uh, after the Holy Spirit has come, and there's this, this is a picture of what the early church was like. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, daily, one accord in the temple. When did they work? When they weren't in the temple. This was most important to them. They worked other times, breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved, just like he does today, right? No, because we don't meet daily anywhere. And we don't meet day to day in people's homes. And we don't break our bread with gladness and sincerity of heart. We don't spend our time praising God. So all the people lost and saved see Christ in us to the point that we have favor with all of them. We don't do any of that because we haven't for hundreds of years. It's just, it's not what we feel comfortable doing. And after all, it's, it's all about us. Acts chapter 4. Now persecution has taken place. Now the government is coming down and threatening their livelihood. They've actually taken some of these people and thrown them in prison, and they're going to flog them. And the fact is, oh, we need to be quiet. Peter and John, you're acting too crazy. If you guys keep doing what you're doing, the government's going to come down and take our children or take our homes or take all our money. And since we want that more than anything, you guys need to be quiet. It's not what they said at all. So when they heard that, that they could no longer preach or teach in the name of Jesus, they raised their voice to God with one accord. You ought to read this prayer. God, give us more boldness. Let us be totally about you. Seem different from the church we grew up with? Acts chapter 5. Through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord at the temple in Solomon's porch. 
And there's so many other accounts of what it was like in the early church where they were single focus on the mission and not on just having Christianity make my life better. Christianity make my life easier. Christianity be all about me. Give me my best life now. Bless me. Help me. Love me. Work on my self-esteem. wasn't about that. It was about Christ, and it was about him and him alone. So what did it look like? If you would, turn to Acts chapter 2. Just read most of these to you. I am not going to... Uh, expand on these today. I'm just going to run them through really quick. And we're going to be talking about these in the weeks to come so we can get a really good picture of what the early church was like. Peter has stood up. He's preached this amazing message, 100 or 297 words. That's it. Five-minute message, uh, not counting scripture. You know, does this message, he calls the people, tells them they're the ones that crucified Christ. The Holy Spirit fell. They were convicted of their sins. What, what must we do? Um, verse number 40 says, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, don't be like the world. Be saved from this perverse generation. And those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, just that day, 3,000 souls were added to them. Instant megachurch. Bam! One message. And they continued steadfast in the apostles' doctrine. Steadfastly. And in fellowship. And in the breaking of bread. And in prayers with an S on the end. Multiple. I can't imagine what it must have been like when the church came together and somebody said, hey, let's pray. Who would like to pray? And every hand went up. Hands just went up. What do we do? Who would like to pray? I don't pray. Why? Well, because I feel uncomfortable praying publicly. That's because you feel uncomfortable praying privately. If you pray privately and you had that kind of relationship with Christ, it's nothing. It's, I mean, I don't mind talking to Karen privately. I don't mind talking to her publicly because it's the same relationship I have. Works exactly the same way with prayer. But no, 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 we, we're, not, we're not interested. We don't view prayer as us communicating to him. We don't want to pray because we don't want other people to judge us by the lack of these and thous or whatever we say in our prayer. It's not what happened here. They devoted themselves to prayers. Then, because of their devotion, fear came upon every soul. And many signs and wonders were done to the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. Oh, we can't have that happen here. And sold their possessions and goods and divided them all as anyone had need. And so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. I want to show you differences between that church, the prototype, the way church is supposed to be, the way God moves among people committed to him, and what we kind of view church today. Back then, the church lived in communities. They lived in enclaves. They lived in common areas. They shared their families with each other. They literally did life together. Not just a marketing phrase, but that's what they did. They met in homes or in many facilities. Do you realize that billions and billions of dollars the church has wasted on huge edifices that make us feel comfortable when we come that are vacant six days a week? What's the point of that? Who, who said in the book of Acts, that's the way it's supposed to be? Oh, that's something that came in the fourth century. When all of a sudden Constantine decided to make Christianity for political reasons, the state religion, and they had all these pagan temples that were just going to convert into uh, Christian temples and all these pagan priests that are now going to be Christian priests, and then the rest is history. The key distinctive, you find this in Paul's letters, of their time in worship together was just that it was worship 
where people would share a verse. People would share a, a, a song or a hymn or a spiritual song. And one person has an exhortation and one person has this. And the gifts are being exercised in the church setting. And it was either it was that. And then they were so energized by what they experienced, they couldn't wait to get out into the world. This is practice. That's the game. Oh, we just want to practice. We don't want to play. We just want to practice. It wasn't like that way in the early church. They weren't led by the clergy and laity. They were led by lay leaders. They were led by you. You. God raised them up. It's not like if you've gone, I decided that I want to be a pastor. Oh, okay. Well, if you want to be a pastor, you have to get hired by an institution, by something that files informative tax returns. And so pretty soon, you have to go to seminary for three years. You're going to have to get a little degree. You're going to have to go through the hiring process. And then they will hire you as their pastor. And you stay there for a couple of years until you can get a bigger church and a bigger church and a bigger church. That's not the concept of the early church. The concept was wherever you are, the Holy Spirit is. You have a church in your own family. Every man in here has a congregation that he is to be shepherding which includes his wife and includes his children. And the Bible says it's not my job or Billy Graham's job or John MacArthur's job or anybody else's job to raise your kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It is your responsibility. It is your responsibility as a husband, we talked about this two weeks ago, to be such a leader in your family that the Bible commands that your wife look to you for spiritual leadership. And if you can't answer the question she has, then you find that answer and then go back to her so that she honors you. The family honors you. They see you studying the Bible and not sitting in front of TV going, I had a tough day at work. It's just the way it is. Click, click, click. It's you. All of us have these, from a biblical standpoint, have a congregation. That's the whole point of small-time pastor, to teach us how to become those men of God. The early church was guided by the scripture. There's no tradition at that time. It's what the Bible says, and they followed it explicitly. Everyone was a priest. There was no intermediary between you and God. Everyone was a priest. And we're going to talk about that so you'll understand what that means. You have direct access to the Father. You have just as much direct access as the Father as the Apostle Paul has. God doesn't show favorites. We have this opportunity to enter in with him and to pray and have this relationship with him, and we squander it because we're so concerned about how we look or how we dress or our house or this or what we're saving for, going out to eat or making money or all that kind of things. Plus, it, it's, it's uncomfortable. They had all things in common. You want to show somebody how much you love them? Give them your car. Changes everything. Cancel your vacation and give the money to somebody who doesn't have a job so that they can make a house payment or two. Oh, God, I can't do that. I can't, my, my family deserves it. They were known in the community as wholly separate people. Wholly separate people. And during that time, they faced immense persecution. I think kind of like the persecution that we're going to be facing. And how did the church being created this way, being empowered by God this way, not being rebuked by the Holy Spirit by showing, hey, you're doing it wrong, instead being honored by the Holy Spirit and having thousands upon thousands and ten thousands of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ to the point they turned the world upside down. How did this church respond during persecution? If you remember... In the book of Acts, it lays out for us uh, church history. The first church, of course, brought us up, church at Ephesus, brought us up to about year 100. And, uh, of course, they lost their first love. They all of a sudden got focused on things other than Christ. The second letter to the church in Smyrna, which means crushed, is uh, talks about the first 300 years of the church where the church suffered immense persecution. And the Holy Spirit speaking to, or actually Jesus speaking to, um, to, to John at this time, lets him know prophetically how many great persecutions are going to take place under Rome's rule. Here's what he says. 
Do not fear these things which you are about to suffer. The letter to the church of Smyrna. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you will be tested and you will have tribulation. How long? Ten days. Prophetically, it's the ten great Roman persecutions. Be faithful to come on Sunday and to tithe and to go, you know, volunteer at BBN. No, no. Be faithful until death. Give you an idea what this persecution is like. And I will give you the crown of life. If you want the crown of life, it costs something. So here are the great 10 persecutions. First one, of course, Nero. Nero's persecution is when Peter was killed and and uh, Paul was beheaded. After that, you can see uh, 10, 12 years later, we've got uh, the Nomatian persecution. Trajan persecution lasted a long time, and it was very violent, and Ign- Ignatius was martyred. By the way, do you, do you know these names? Ignatian, Ignatius, Justice, Martyr, Tertullian, um, Polycarp. Heard any of those names? Most of us haven't. I was riding in a car with... Um, uh, Josiah, not picking on you, Josiah, but I'm riding a car with Josiah, and uh, we were talking about who the best basketball player was. He, of course, LeBron James, so much better than Michael Jordan. That's because he never saw Michael Jordan play, you know. And so we started talking about that. And so we're in the car, we're having a discussion, and I said, No, 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 Michael Jordan was better because I mean he won more NBA championships than anybody else. How many did he win? Four. And uh, how many did? Uh, uh, how many has LeBron won? Four. And how many, uh, who was the one that won the most? Yeah. Anyway, we started, talk, we started talking about rebounding and who's the greatest rebounder and all this kind of stuff. And, I mean, he was rattling this stuff off. You know, who was an envy player the most year? I mean, he knew it all. He knew how many rebounds that Will Chamberlain had versus Dennis Rodman and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it was amazing, this wealth of information that he had about basketball. Do you know why? Because he loves basketball. Loves basketball. I could ask Vic about pharmacy and drugs and stuff of that nature. He has a wealth of information because that's what he does. People call me up all the time. I even got a call yesterday asking for tax advice. Why? Because that's had this wealth of information about that kind of stuff. David Myers, want to talk to him. Uh, David, this is happening to my car right now. It's got this little ping that sounds like this. Oh, let me tell you exactly what that is because it's about an automobile and he loves stuff like that. And we know nothing about the history of our church. We know nothing about people who paid this terrible price unless we've seen some movie. We talk about Polycarp and Justin Martyr and people of that. Who? What? St. Augustine? I, I, I don't even know what that means. How can that be when this is supposed to be the cornerstone of our life? We have uh, Emperor Pius, Marcus Aurelius, great persecution that took place. Uh, Severus and Maximus and Decius. And then, of course, we have Valerian and uh, the Diocletian persecution was one of the worst. And that was right before God moved and, and turned it all around with Constantine. I mean, these are the 10 great Roman persecutions that took place. That was prophetic, told us it was going to happen, that the church suffered under for over 300 years. And during that time, there were certain apologists, there were certain church leaders who would reach out to these pagan governors, pagan rulers who were killing Christians by the thousands and tens of thousands and in such a horrific way who refused to recant their faith. And they would offer these, they called them back then apologies where we get apologetic from, really wanted an apology, a defense of who they are as believers. Justin Martyr wrote one to Emperor Pius around 150 AD. Emperor Pius is just this the terrible wholesale slaughter of Christians. And what Justin Martyr said was this, look, I know what Christians are like. I know what the church is like. I know that there's a lot of rumors going on about what we're supposedly, how terrible people we are. But if you will examine us, if you examine our heart, if you examine our conduct, if you will investigate, you will find that the church, the collective church is not like that at all. Instead, we're sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's part of his letter 
written in A.D. 150. Since you are called pious and philosophers, guardians of justice and lovers of learning, please pay attention to my address. If you are indeed followers of learning, it will be clear. We have not come to flatter you by writing this, nor please you by our address, but to beg you to pass judgment after an accurate and searching investigation. As for us, no evil can be done to us unless we are convicted as evildoers are proved to be wicked men. You can kill us, but you cannot hurt us. Gosh, this is writing like if you're a Christian to the Ayatollah. There's some Muslim lord that has the power to kill you and desires to do that. To avoid anyone thinking this is an unreasonable or reckless declaration, we demand that the charges against the Christians be investigated. If these are substantiated, we should be justly punished. But if no one can convict us of anything, some confidence he has in the moral purity of the church. True reason forbids you wrong, blameless men you wrong us blameless men because of evil rumors. If you did so, you would be harming yourself in governing affairs by emotions rather than intelligence. It is our task, therefore, to provide to all an opportunity of inspecting our life and teachings. It is your business when you hear us to be good judges, as reason demands. If, when you have learned the truth, you do not do what is just, you will be without excuse before God. If a government official were to look in your life or the life of the church to examine your morals and what you do with your time and compare it to what we claim as Christians, would you be found guiltless or would you be found to be a hypocrite? Well, I know I shouldn't do those things and I'm planning on doing this. This was life and death in the early church. And they were committed that much to him. Persecution, breaking out a little bit earlier. A.D. 130, there's this letter that is written. And this letter gives a description of what the church was like just 30 years after John died. One generation later, this is what the church was like. And I want you to compare it to your vision and your version of Christianity in the church. This is 130 A.D. For the Christians are distinguished from other men neither by country nor language nor customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit their own cities nor implore a particular form of speech nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocate of a merely human doctrine. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them has determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. You can't tell a Christian by the way they talk, by the way they dress, or what country they live in. Christians are all around everybody, and they blend in to be just like everybody else. What stands them apart, he says, is their conduct. And here's what he says about that. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, yet they endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth is a land of strangers. They marry, as do others. They begot children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They're sexually pure. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. But what do they do? They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws in their own lives. They love all men and are per persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor, 
they are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet justified. They are reviled and and blessed. They are insulted and repay insult with honor. They do good, yet they are punished as evildoers. When punished, listen carefully, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. To sum it up in one word, this is how the church was described in A.D. 130. To sum it up in one word, what the soul is to the body are what Christians are to the world. Sounds like us, doesn't it? Sounds like the church today, doesn't it? We're so concerned about being relevant that we've let down our guard and become no different than they are. And then we wonder why they're not interested in the message we preach. Tertullian wrote this in the year 197 as a um, um, defense of the gospel explaining these are the true practices of the Christian church, not what the rumors have. We are a body knit together by such a common religious profession, by unity of discipline. Gosh, that's something we've forgotten today. And by the bond of common hope. We meet together as an assembly and congregation that offering up prayers to God with united force we may wrestle with him in our supplications. This strong exertion in prayer God delights in. We pray too for the emperors, for their ministers and for all in authority, for the welfare of the world, for the prevalence of peace, for the delay of the final consummation or judgment. We assemble to read our sacred writings. You ever thought about your Bible being just that, a sacred writing? And with sacred words, we nourish our faith. We animate our hope and we make our confidence more steadfast and no less by inoculations of God's precepts, we confirm good habits. In the same place, also exhortations are made, rebukes and sacred censures are administered. What is this? It's when the church judges itself. When the church looks at someone who claims to be a Christian and lives outside of the moral bounds of Christianity, the church didn't turn a blind eye to it. They practiced Matthew 18 and they corrected the problem. We, of course, don't do that today. For with great gravity is the work of judging carried out among us, as befits those who feel assured that they are in the sight of God and that you have the most notable example of judgment to come when anyone has sinned so grievously as to require his severance from us in prayer, in the congregation, and in all sacred interaction. These tried men of our elders preside over us, attaining that honor not by purchase, but by established character. There is no buying or selling of any sort in the things of God. Though we have our treasure chest, or our checking account, it is not made up of purchase money as a religion that has its price. On the monthly day, in other words, on the day of the month that they choose to meet, if he likes, each person puts in a small donation, but only if, he, if it's his pleasure and only if he is able, for there is no compulsion, all is voluntary. What do we do with these gifts? These gifts are not spent on feast and drinking bouts, and eating houses, but to support and bury poor people, to supply the wants of boys and girls, destitutes of means and parents, and of old persons confined now to the house, such too as have suffered shipwreck. And if there happens to be any in the mines, are banished to the islands, or shut up in prison for nothing but their fidelity to the cause of God's church, they become the nurslings of their confessions." But it is mainly the deeds of love so noble that, noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See, they say how they love one another, for they themselves are animated by mutual hatred. See, they say about us how they are ready to even die for one another, but they themselves would sooner kill. Last one. One of the, other than Diocletian, this was a very horrific persecution that took place. 
And this was a letter written by a believer to explain to the emperor um, that killing us will not solve your issue. Listen very carefully, the early church's view about death and life in this world. Every morning and all hours on account of the goodness of God towards them, they render praise and laud him over their food and drink. They render him thanks. And if any righteous person of their number passes away from this world, they rejoice and give thanks to God, and they follow his body as though he were moving from one place to another. And when a child is born to them, they praise God. And again, if chances the child dies in infancy, they praise him mightily as for one who has passed through this world without sins. We don't do that. I have cancer. Oh, what am I going to do? I go through every method possible to prolong our life in this world because we don't want to go to heaven. Because we think living here somehow is better than going to heaven. Like our value to Christ here is so great that he just couldn't make it without us. When we fail to do the the things he's called us to do. This is a picture, just an overall picture of what the church was like and should be like and how we have dropped the ball. I, as pastor, have dropped the ball. So I'm going to share a couple things with you, and I'm going to ask you to consider these, to move out of your comfort zone, to seriously put Christ first in every avenue of your life, And if so, based on what the early church would do, these are some of the things that that we would do. I mean, after all, we're supposed to be striving for this great cloud of witnesses that is urging us on towards this finish line. But we need to recognize what we've lost and realize that the command of Christ has not changed. Has not changed. It was just as valid to them as it is to us. Here is his final command. All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Because of that, go. Not stay. Go. Every single believer. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. How? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Anything else? Yes, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You will not have to do this alone. Go. Oh, we don't go anymore. Well, what do we do? No, we have a mission conference that comes in and, and we, we support our missionaries. We let um, the Clarks go. They feel led to go to Papua New Guinea. So they go to Papua New Guinea. We support them going to Papua New Guinea, which is a great thing to do. And while they're there, they're performing the Great Commission. And we don't feel led to go. We feel led to stay. Okay. And if we feel led to stay, it must mean because we want to perform the Great Commission here among our friends and families and co-workers and the metron or the field of influence God has placed in our life. Or do we let them go and we sit and do nothing, but we'll just give a little money to help support them? We've missed it. This command applies not only to the Clarks, but it applies to every single one of us. Keith Green one time sang a song that said, Jesus commands us to go. And it's the exception if we stay. We've chosen to stay. Okay. Then if we've chosen to stay, what are we doing with this command that God has given us? So I want you to consider opening up your home this year. Open it up. I mean, why not? Just open up your home to Bible study. I, I, I don't feel comfortable teaching Bible study. You don't have to teach Bible study. I mean, uh, I think Karen is doing that this year with the ladies. She felt led. Is that correct? She felt led to get all the ladies together. And I want to open up my home. And it's a hassle opening up your home. I want to open up my home. And I'm going to do a Bible study. And it's not like Karen's going to take the book of Habakkuk and start doing that. She got a Bible study. They're going to go through it together. We're going to, we're going to do it that way. Some men, I feel uncomfortable teaching God's word. Well, you don't have to. Once like Chuck Missler do it. You can join the Cornelia Institute for free. They've now offered that 
for free. And you can put your laptop up or put it on your television. You can turn around and you can let Chuck Missler, who's my go-to guy, uh, has been for years. You can let Chuck Missler teach the Bible for you in your living room with your friends. And then you can facilitate some discussion. You can learn on your own. If it cost us something, we wouldn't do it because we'd rather spend the money going to a restaurant. But now it's free. There's no excuse for any of us can do that. Stretch yourself. If you're not going to go, then let's make disciples here. And that begins in your home. Well, I don't know if I want to do that. Okay, then why don't you come to uh, somebody else who's doing that? Why don't you come on Tuesday night? Why don't you come to the ladies' prayer meeting on uh on Saturday, why don't you come to the men's class? If somebody else decides to open up their home, why don't you go? Well, there's just so much I have to do. What? What? Everything that makes us so busy, we can't be about the things of God, are things we have chosen to do. But the reality is, it's not about us. It's about him. Why don't you consider doing that this year? To come on Tuesday. You know, I have to rearrange some things. Okay. If you got tickets to some show you wanted to watch, you'd arrange some things. If there was something that meant something to you, you would arrange some things. And if it doesn't mean something to you to get together with other believers and study God's word, that's a bigger problem than this. You have to teach your kids. Not happening in church. We don't have a Sunday school here. You know, uh, and so we've got a lot of kids that are around and we have these little things that they can color on and stuff of that nature. But, but if you're expecting the youth pastor, the children's church, me to teach your kids, it's not going to happen. You have to teach your kids. And maybe you want to bond together with some other parents and have a time where all the kids can come together and, and do that. I, do I have to create that and beg you to come? Or do, can some of you who have kids say, you know what? I'd like to get together with some other kids. Let's all get them together on a Saturday or, or whenever and come to the church and, and we'll kind of do that. I mean, it's got to be some creative ways to lead our kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And men, that's not your wife's job. That's your job. It's your job to be the spiritual leader of your family. You may delegate that to her, but you're the one ultimately responsible. And if you don't feel compelled to go, then you got to find a way to bring the lost to your house, to stay, to meet them where they are, because the command doesn't go away because we're not on the mission field. And someday, someday we're all going to give an account for this. And so I want to encourage you to let 2021 be the time that we set, we set the balance right when it comes to... Um, Maybe failures, as Justice read about today, failures that we've had with the Lord. Amen? Now, the only thing keeping you from doing this is you. And if you want to do it, you will. If you don't, you won't. And if you don't, I, I can promise you, things are going to get darker spiritually. They're going to get really dark. And if you don't have that faith prepping kind of attitude, if, you don't, if you're not prepared to, to be the leader in your family, then... It's going to get really dark really fast because the pressure is going to get kicked up. And we're not here to see who's president. We're not here to make a lot of money. We're not here to retire with a huge house paid off. If all those things happen, that's a blessing. But what we're here to do is to take everything we can, like building this building, and turning it into some way that we can bless others with it and glorify the Lord. Amen? So let me encourage you to consider those things this year and give me a call this week and let's get those things started. I thank you for obviously answering what the Lord has called you to do regarding op opening up your home for the ladies' Bible study. I mean, that's, that's excellent. And I will encourage the rest of you to either go and support her. And once you feel comfortable with that, if she does it on Tuesday, you guys do it on Saturday. I mean, that's the way we reach out. That's the way, that's the way the gospel in the book of Acts was proclaimed. Because the way we're doing it as the church collective ain't working. Would you agree? Let me pray.